How many of you have seen the movie Rudy? Yeah, it's a, a really good movie from the 90s where a kid had a dream and a desire to play football at Notre Dame in the state of Illinois. Uh, and Rudy, he's a small kid. In the beginning of the movie, he's playing outside a game of two-on-two, and he goes to rush the quarterback. And the quarterback, I think it may have been his older brother, pushes Rudy's head down, causing him to fall in the snow. The pass is caught for a touchdown, creating the scene for the challenge this this, uh, small kid is up against in becoming a successful football player who wants to go to Notre Dame. It's that evening directly after the game that his father asks, is there anything anyone, anyone wants to say to me tonight? As one of 14 kids, Rudy says, I'm going to play football at Notre Dame. Everyone, of course, responds with a laugh. But with this being a movie, you know that this kid is determined to prove people wrong. He only wants... He not only wants to be a good football player, but he wants to do it at, an, at a national college football powerhouse. Sometime later in the movie, it shows Rudy sitting in a class um, when he was in high school, sort of just staring off into the, into the distance, daydreaming. So the teacher picks on him, asks him a question to the answer, or a question, and Rudy responds with a nebulous answer that doesn't make any sense because he's not paying any attention. And the teacher says, "Um, you know what the problem with dreamers is? They're usually not doers. Their achievements are grand up here, but not down here where it actually counts. The teacher then announces a trip to Notre Dame. Uh, They must live somewhere close. And uh, Rudy, of course, he's very interested. He has this dream of playing in Notre Dame. But... uh, Rudy, he's not a very good student. And the teacher, of course, knows this. And as they're getting on the bus, he pulls Rudy aside and he says, you know, not everyone is meant to go to college. So Rudy walks away sad. During high school, Rudy was a decent football player, but um, he was still small. He had a love and a passion for the game. And stemming from his desire... And this is all sort of stemming from his desire to play football at Notre Dame. Obviously, the odds are not in his favor. Um, You know, he can't even get into the school that he wants to play at. So he ends up working for a steel mill. Uh, And four years later, at this steel mill, during a break, uh, his friend Pete comes up to him, and he has this uh, letterman jacket. It says Notre Dame on the back. It's got the little four-leaf clover that says Irish on it. And it sort of sparks that dream and that vision that Rudy had of himself playing in Notre Dame. Um, And Pete tells him, you need to work. You need to just go for it. And Rudy says, yeah, I've been saving up. He had $1,000, which was a significant amount of money, a little more significant than it would be today. Um, But... Um, shortly after Pete gave Rudy that jacket, they're working in the steel mill, and there was an accident, an accident that caused Pete to die. And um, so it kind of 
brought Rudy to a point of realizing life is short. I have this dream, and I need to go for it. If you've seen the movie, you know the rest. He consistently asks along the way, have I done everything I possibly can? He had to spend two years at a smaller college getting good enough grades before he would finally be accepted to Notre Dame on his third try, at least in the movie. And after getting in, he then had to make the practice squad. So if you remember, this is a small guy, five foot six, less than 200 pounds, going to a place where people are six foot eight, 300 pounds. You know, the odds are not really in his favor. Um, but he had a heart and a desire that was unlike anyone else on the team, and the coaches wanted him to play, or at least you know, be on that practice squad. So he was on the practice squad for his remaining two years of school, and he never actually dressed for a game. Because the rules are you can't have more than 60 players on the field at a time, and, and he just didn't really make the cut. You know, when you only have about one sub for each position, uh, you're not going to put in the little guy. But what Rudy ultimately wanted to do was prove something to the people who told him he couldn't do it. No one was going to tell him otherwise. And at the last home game of his senior year, he was allowed to dress up after pleading with his coach a little bit. And with the team well above their opponent, late in the fourth quarter, Rudy actually got a chance to play. And in his only defensive play in his entire post-high school career, he got to rush the passer, sort of like at the beginning of the movie. But this time, he sacked him and brought him to the ground. It's a pretty encouraging story about perseverance and not allowing others to tell you what is and is not possible. See, Rudy had a vision for what he wanted to do and who he wanted to be. He had a vision for a future reality that no one else could see for him. The story is inspiring because it happens to all of us. Everyone is told what they can or cannot do. People see us a certain way and expect something. We also look at ourselves and expect something. Sometimes we let other people's opinions dictate the opinions we have of others or the opinions we have of ourselves, for better or for worse. But ultimately, however we handle that, we have a vision of who we are and who we should become. This doesn't only happen individually, though. We're told by social groups and society how we should or should not act, what we should support or not support, what is politically accurate and what is not politically accurate. And depending on your circumstances... You'll agree or disagree with what you're told or what you should do or what you shouldn't do. But most people will do what society or social groups say they should do as long as it matches their ideology and confirms their own opinions. So I'm sure that you may have heard of different groups going around the country right now protesting um, sort of hot news topics. Um, there's this group called uh, Not My President kind of protesting around, one called Black Lives Matter. Um, there, there's also uh, a pro-life versus pro-choice movement. Um, there's an alt-right movement. 
These are all political, religious, social-type movements because they attempt to change and influence the norms of society. They're telling people you should believe this or you should not believe this or you should accept this or agree with this. Ultimately, these people want to be heard because of strong convictions based upon their formed ideologies. And people listen, which then influences their ideology, for better or worse. But naturally, they'll listen more to people with whom they have greater agreement. Who people agree with is frequently based on the experience with different cultures that they may have had, um, maybe different political conversations they've had in classrooms or at the dinner table or among friends. Um, people are going to have different opinions if they live in a, an urban area versus a suburban or rural area because of the circumstances surrounding that environment. And when it comes to, let's say, immigration, there's people who have real relationships with people who maybe have an illegal type of status and because they know that person personally, it's going to influence the view they have upon that policy. So um, the experiences that we have and the, um, those experiences are going to influence our ideas. And <clears throat> some, some of these politics things can be pretty hot issues. So I'm not going to discuss really any specifics, but um, I'll say some of you are going to have an opinion when I say black lives matter and when I say all lives matter. It sort of stirs an emotion in you. Um, people have different ideologies or worldviews that ultimately impact how people live. And we all have a vision of how we can fit our worldview into a world where others disagree. This clashing of views is what Paul had to address in his letter to the Corinthians. Corinth was a diverse city connected to the Roman Empire. People came from all over, which meant there were several different cultures influencing the Corinthians. But the overarching influence in the church was spiritual Hellenism, essentially expect, or the acceptance of a spiritual reality and a soul. Basically, your soul lives on for eternity, but the body is a sign of death and decay. So the idea that your body would continue on in the future is just not what they grew up knowing or understanding or believing. And that's a stark contrast with Christianity because... Um, Spiritual Hellenism believed that immortality of the soul was the only form of eternal life. Well, if you haven't heard, let me be the first to tell you, uh, Jesus was resurrected from the dead in a physical body. This is arguably the most important theological piece in our faith. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but if there was no resurrection the whole dying on a cross thing would have ended there. Jesus wasn't the first person to be crucified, but he was the first person to be resurrected from the dead permanently. This wasn't easy for some of the Corinthians to grasp because their culture told them 
it was good to rid of the body at death so the soul could live on eternally. If you believed one thing and were told you were wrong, it would be difficult to accept. It's like telling you that Islam is the true faith, not Christianity. That's not going to happen, but you might get the idea of how that would feel when someone's challenging a deeply held religious belief that you, you hold. In Christianity, we get the physical, the physical body back, a contrasting point with many in the Corinthian church. And Paul confronts them on this letter. Um, and I think if you go to that first verse there, uh, Paul isn't talking about some sort of spiritual awakening. That's not what Jesus' resurrection is. He's saying Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. When Paul wrote this letter, his words were intended to change the Corinthians' theology and behavior. He didn't write this because it was not a problem. There were definitely many who questioned the actual resurrection of Jesus Christ. And those people would have seen Christianity as a source of knowledge and wisdom or the way to live the good life. Further, it says, For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Notice how Paul references Adam here. He says, since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. If you remember the story in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of humanity occurs when both Adam and Eve eat of the fruit in the Garden of Eden. They went, God, they went against God's request to not eat of the fruit. So, Right now, we are in Adam. We experience death and pain as a result of the sin in our lives. But we're also in Christ. Our faith is in a paradox. And theologians, they refer to this as the already but not yet. You most certainly will face death in this life. You're dying right now. You feel pain right now. And our salvation comes in Christ. And you are to live your faith right now. Being in Christ is to share in the resurrection of Christ. As Christ has risen from the dead, we too are to be risen in a physical, literal resurrection. In Christ, you will be made alive. This is the end of our faith. Not death to the body and our souls live on. Not death and nothing else. No, our future after death is resurrection. Paul is confronting the Corinthians on this very issue because they have trouble accepting a physical resurrection. Even today in the church, probably some of you in this room 
see faith as a spiritual source of wisdom and knowledge so that you can live a good life. In other words, faith helps you grasp with reality at an intellectual level. You might feel more enlightened or encouraged or loved. And those things are not bad. But it distorts the essential piece of our faith if you cannot accept the resurrection. We, too, live in a society where ideas and social customs or different ideologies, they're, they're vast. There's a lot of them. When people talk about the energy of the universe or becoming one with nature. People talk about religions all being essentially the same because it points people to love. But in Paul's letter, he's basically pulling the red flag on that stuff because it was a problem. Christianity cannot be distorted into becoming some sort of ideology or way of thinking, especially as it relates to the physical realities in our world. You will die, but if you are in Christ, you will be resurrected literally. As Jonathan said last week, if there's no resurrection, we're all wasting our time and our faith is meaningless. Let me continue reading our passage in 1 Corinthians. Uh, beginning at verse 24. Then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. Now when it says that everything has been put under him, it is clear that this does not include God himself who put everything under Christ. When he has done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who put everything under him, so that God may be all in all. Now, if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them? And as for us, why do we endanger ourselves every hour? I face death every day. Yes, just as surely as I boast about you in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus with no more than human hopes, what have I gained? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. I'm not going to get into the, the baptism of the dead stuff, but, <laughs> but what Paul has reiterated in these verses are the essential nature of the resurrection. Paul has been beaten for the gospel. He has been imprisoned. He has risked his life and asks, for what reason? Why do I do this if there's no resurrection? He quotes Isaiah's prophecy in chapter 22, verse 13. And this this prophecy is about Jerusalem essentially doing what they should not be doing. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's basically saying, YOLO, you only live once. We'll all die eventually, so who cares? Or have to try everything at least once, right? And Paul's saying, no. No. He faced death because there is a future resurrection. To further complicate the Corinthians' worldview, though, apart from this spiritual idea of death, they also have a political idea of salvation. Corinth was a city developed by Caesar. So the people in that city saw salvation 
as the blessings of safety, health, and wealth, which is the protections a Roman city would receive. The politics of the time would acclaim Augustus Caesar, or whoever was a Caesar at that time, as a god. And people hoped for their salvation to come to that city. It would bring wealth, the protection of the Roman government, and the health afforded to the more affluent peoples at that time. So Corinthians literally had to struggle with their source of salvation. Was it Caesar or Christ? We may struggle with the same idea today, though. But it's more a struggle between the American dream and living for Christ, or living in Christ. We can work towards and for the things in this world, or we can uh, live and work for God's purposes in this world. It's not to say that the things of this world are, are inherently bad because they aren't, but the reason for which we live is telling of where we find our salvation. Is it in the things we have or in the hope of a future resurrection? Paul wrote this letter to persuade the Corinthians from believing that Caesar is their source of salvation and that there is a literal resurrection. It's not only an important part of our faith, it's just as important as the crucifixion of Christ. The last verse in our passage today is... uh, Verses are 33 and 34. It says, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Come back to your senses as you ought and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God. I say this to your shame. You probably have heard that there's freedom in Christ. In other words, we're saved by grace through our faith in what Christ did for us on the cross, where death was defeated and was confirmed by his resurrection. Christ defeated death, our life in Adam. When we are in Christ, it's Jesus who cleanses us of our impurities. When the end comes, God doesn't say, you did okay, Sean, you made it in. No, he says... (laughs) You're here by grace only. And it's because of him pointing over to Jesus. So yes, there's freedom to mess up and do things wrong. But if there's someone who sees you acting in your freedom but does not know God, you're misleading him into how those in faith live. This is a faith with high morals and standards of living. It's not a live and let live sort of faith especially as we look at one another as the body of Christ. So basically, live in Christ because of his resurrection, which will come again, or we will be resurrected here. Allow the Holy Spirit to guide you and know God more by reading his word. We have a physical future. I mean, it's real. When we die, we will be resurrected with a physical body. There's not just a spiritual future with our souls floating around. And our faith is not just about knowledge and wisdom. We can receive those things through our faith by God's grace, but it's not at the core. 
Earlier in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. The prize is the resurrection. It's eternal life. It's the vision we should have. Our future should be seen in this way. When Rudy was a child, he had a vision to play at Notre Dame. And the odds were against him and people doubted him. But he showed heart and perseverance and discipline. We face similar challenges in our lives. But when it comes to our faith, people doubt the resurrection. We are challenged to continue in our faith when we're denied God's graces on earth. We're challenged to remember our vision of the resurrection, especially when people doubt the existence of our God. We are challenged to continue praying when there seems to be a void of silence on the other side. We're challenged to help our neighbors when it inconveniences us. We're challenged to not pursue the treasures of this world. And we're tempted to live as though this is our only life. But if you are in Christ, you will be resurrected as Christ was resurrected. Death has been defeated, and it's the only reason you're here today. What's the vision of your future? Do you look two years down the road? Do you focus on the job you'll have or the town in which you'll live? Are you able to say, yes, I have done everything Christ has called me to do. I see my future, and it's in glory. Our vision has to be bigger than playing for Notre Dame. It has to go beyond what we know. Our vision has to be of the future resurrection. So run in such a way as to get the prize. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Be content in all things and do not envy and do not boast. Live for Christ and let death be your gain. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, Jesus, Father God, we thank you for the resurrection and the future we will someday inherit. Help us to be attentive to your will. Allow us to live out our faith with the same perseverance as Paul, with a similar and determined heart possessed by Rudy. All for your glory. Amen.